Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In the pitch black of an October night, a shadowy figure was spotted trying to climb over the fence of the Duluth Air Force Base in Minnesota. It was 1962, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the US military was on edge. Intelligence reports suggested that before launching their own attack, the Soviets would try to sabotage American nuclear stockpiles. The Duluth base, home to around 130 missiles, was a target. When a guard spotted the figure at the fence, he took it for a saboteur and started firing. These shots triggered an alarm system that spread to several other bases. At Vokefield in Wisconsin, a malfunction caused the wrong type of alert to go off, one signalling that a nuclear attack should be launched. Two squadrons of fighter jets rushed to assemble, each carrying a nuclear-tipped rocket. Luckily, someone realised the mistake just in time and drove down the runway in a truck, flashing their lights, to stop the planes taking off and accidentally starting World War III. As for the suspected Soviet intruder, it turned out not to be a saboteur, but a black bear out for a nighttime stroll. With hindsight, it's rather amusing that a furry animal brought the world to the brink of catastrophe. But it shows how, as long as nuclear weapons exist, disaster is always scarily close. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how should we think about the nuclear threat? Nuclear weapons have only been used twice in warfare. Since America dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, a fragile blend of deterrence, treaties, fear and taboo has stopped the world's nuclear powers from deploying their weapons in anger. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the threats of nuclear attack that followed have ushered in a new atomic era. What role can America play in protecting the world from nuclear catastrophe? With me to talk about how to think about the risk of nuclear conflict are Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defence editor, and John Fasman. Fasman, how are you doing? What's going on in New York? Well, John, I am delighted to be here, especially with Shashank. I'm really looking forward to this discussion, and I think it'll be a treat for our listeners. What else is going on aside from that? I did an Economist Asks episode yesterday with Chris Murphy about gun control. That's been very good news out of Washington. 
Um, I just reported a food column that I'm excited to write. I won't spoil anything by telling you the subject. And I've got two sons who are at the end of their school years and are just giddy with excitement. Yes, those American summer holidays do seem infinite at this time of the year. It is, however, a huge treat to have Shashank with us. Charlotte is camping somewhere in the worlds of Alaska with no internet connectivity, which she insists is a work trip, but I'm a bit doubtful about that. But Shashank, I was looking back in our archive, and this is episode number 125 of Checks and Balance, and you were on the very first one. So welcome back. Thank you very much, Sean. I'm not sure whether to be honoured you've invited me back or worried it's taken 125 episodes, but I'm delighted to be stepping into Charlotte's uh, unfillable shoes. And the particular reason we wanted you to come back this week is that lots of us are thinking about the risks of the conflict in Ukraine going nuclear, specifically the risk of Russia using a battlefield nuke and what would follow from that. But also because something you've been writing about recently is the broader risks that arise from the decay of the nuclear taboo against the use of nuclear weapons in war. Why now? There was a sense, John, that the nuclear order, the global nuclear order, was looking pretty ragged even before this war, right? And then along comes this conflict in which not only is there a kind of nuclear shadow to this with Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons against anyone who intervenes, but I think also much more broadly than that, for me, this war has kind of crystallized the fact that the way we talk and think about nuclear weapons is changing. I think it's becoming more glib, more desensitized. Some of the kind of shock and horror we would associate with nuclear weapons, with nuclear use, it's kind of fading away. And, and for me, that's what made this a really significant topic to tackle right now. Well, that idea of a nuclear taboo, which has held for 77 years now, is very important. And it's a phrase that was coined by Dr. Nina Tannenwald, who's a political scientist at Brown University. I asked her to explain what has kept world powers from deploying their nuclear weapons since 1945. The nuclear taboo is a norm of non-use of nuclear weapons. It's associated with a sense of, of moral opprobrium. It's a kind of normative uh, reinforcement of deterrence and the practice of non-use. So some people argue, well, deterrence, it just operates because it would be irrational for any state to use nuclear weapons against another nuclear armed state. This is what's called mutual assured destruction. But in reality, the balance of terror is not always stable. And the nuclear taboo is a reminder to us that a use of nuclear weapons would cross this threshold and put us in a new world of nuclear escalation, which could lead to a nuclear war. And we have no idea what would happen at that point. You wrote an article in 2018 about the nuclear taboo unraveling. And I wanted to know what's your level of concern now? And are your concerns the same as they were then or are they different? My concerns are higher than they were in 2018. And the nuclear normative order was already unraveling before the Ukraine war. That is, the nuclear armed states were building up their nuclear arsenals. North Korea has acquired nuclear weapons and Iran is pursuing nuclear weapons. Arms control agreements have been torn up. And so there is a, a general unraveling of norms of nuclear restraint. The Ukraine war has exacerbated this. Russia has been making 
open and regular nuclear threats against NATO countries. And uh, there is a lot of concern that if the war was going badly for Putin, Putin might reach for a tactical nuclear weapon in order to coerce Ukraine into conceding. We are in a moment of the greatest uh, risk of use of nuclear weapons since any time during the Cold War, perhaps the early 1980s, but certainly since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you help me think through how to think about that level of nuclear risk? There's this debate going on at the moment about how hard the West and the pro-Ukrainian alliance should push against Russia, how heavily and sort of amply the Ukrainians should be armed. And one thing that weighs into that calculation, of course, is is the risk of nuclear war. And I, you know, I just don't know what we should be thinking about. Are we talking about you know, a 1% chance, less? You know, How has it changed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think the risk of use of nuclear weapons is still relatively low. And perhaps it's even a little lower right now than it was earlier in the war. But the risk is not zero. And the longer the war goes on, in my view, the more the risk goes up. This is one of the big lessons of the Cold War, that if you have nuclear weapons and you're fighting, or you're fighting a nuclear armed state, there are going to be constraints on you. And I think this is a, a, a lesson we may have forgotten a bit uh, from the Cold War. But the United States and Ukraine do not have identical interests in this war. If I were Zelensky... I would be doing exactly what Zelensky is doing, which is pushing hard on everybody to to do more to supply Ukraine. But the West and NATO have different interests. And one of those interests is avoiding a nuclear war. That's one of the primary responsibilities of the president of the United States. I think the Biden administration has basically done a pretty good job up to now. But it does worry me when people talk about total victory. That's just a, a very risky stance to take against a nuclear armed state. How different now are the US and the Russian nuclear doctrines? I mean, Joe Biden got pretty close to forswearing first use, um, which used to be Russia's position. It's now no longer. And it seems that Russia's nuclear doctrine is a bit closer to you know, opening the door to the use of, scare quotes, tactical nuclear weapons. On, on the battlefield in, a, in an ordinary conflict. There's been a lot of talk about Russia's nuclear doctrine and the so-called escalate to de-escalate policy. The Biden administration has not released its nuclear doctrine statement yet. And we do know that Biden is much more in favor of a very last resort use of nuclear weapons than even a, a some kind of sole use or no first use policy. What I think is different here between the U.S. and Russia is Russia's propensity, especially in this war, to violate all kinds of norms. Russia has violated norms of the laws of war, international humanitarian law. It is engaged in massive war crimes. And so you might ask someone who's willing to violate all these norms might not be inhibited about violating the nuclear taboo. That is the worry. Even so, I do think that Putin and his generals do appreciate the, the, the reality of mad mutual assured destruction, that if Putin did use a nuclear weapon on a NATO country, there would be a very, very severe response.
Shashank, I want Russia to lose this war. I want Ukraine to win. I want Russia to be pushed back to the boundaries before the invasion in February. But I'm also aware that if that happens, the likelihood of Russia using nuclear weapons in some form increases. And that's inconvenient for my argument and my worldview. And what bothers me most about this is that I feel like I don't have a good framework for understanding the kind of level of risk that we're running here. Can you help us to think through that one, please? I can try, John. I mean, I think there are sort of two red lines in this conflict, right? One of them is February 23rd. Returning to February 23rd, pretty much everyone can agree that's a reasonable aim and that if you were to do it, that's not enough to push Putin into believing the Kremlin is under attack. But there's another line, which is 2014, or, you know, call it April 2014, which is pushing Russia not just out of Kherson, Zaporizhia, um, you know, all of these other places they've taken in the last three months, but also pushing them out of the entirety of Donbass, the entirety of Crimea, which of course is now deemed to be Russian territory by Russia because they've annexed it. That's a very different, that sounds a lot more likely to put Putin in a, in a jittery situation. And the added difficulty of all of this is that even if we knew which of those was escalatory and which was not, it doesn't necessarily fix our policy problem. Because if Ukrainian forces are strong enough to get to the February 23rd line, let me tell you, they're also strong enough to get a lot closer to Crimea. Now, I have to say, at the end of all of that, I would still say, even if you had Ukrainian forces chomping at the bit and and, and sort of slamming Russians out of Donbass entirely, the risk of nuclear escalation is low in my assessment. And, And that's basically because I think nuclear use is more likely to invite Western intervention in Ukraine, more likely to bring about the end of the Putin regime than than to save it. But it is a difficult, difficult policy because we can't calibrate it. There's no sweet spot. You mentioned that Putin is unlikely to use a nuclear weapon because he fears, I think with for good reason, that this would invite a strong Western response. And that suggests to me that while I don't doubt that there is a nuclear taboo, it's not the sole reason weapons haven't been used, right? It's because leaders of other countries fear a strong response, in particular, a strong American response. Joe Biden, I'm sure you saw in an op-ed in the New York Times, warned that nuclear use would lead to a severe response. But then a couple of weeks later, in another article, his officials sort of walked that back and said that if Vladimir Putin uses a tactical nuke, it probably would trigger a non-nuclear response. I wonder if you feel that sense of mixed signals is itself a risk. That is that the threshold use of nuclear weapons is high in Russia because he fears mutually assured destruction. If he thinks that using nukes will trigger a non-nuclear response, does that raise the likelihood that he will use them? You know, your question, John, it almost feels like in itself to ask that question, we're descending into the depths of 1950s Rand scholars debating doomsday, right? Just a sort of <laughs> recursive, surreal nature of nuclear deterrence thinking. Um, and, and I think that, in my opinion, we're talking here principally about Russian nuclear use in Ukraine. And the risk is not, therefore, that for me, that the Putin regime then gets incinerated with an American nuke. It's that this triggers a set of actions culminating in NATO or the US or others intervening in Ukraine uh, because a taboo has been broken, uh, conventionally intervening. And I think that's the much bigger concern. 
But on the question of whether a limited nuclear use against NATO, let's say he he attacked bases in Poland with a nuclear weapon. Well, this is a situation that the Obama era National Security Council and, and different groups of people war gamed out. And in those war games, in some of those games, American officials thought, what the hell do we do? And they responded ultimately by nuking Belarus which was not even involved in this hypothetical conflict, right? which gives you a sense of the crazy nature of this. But I think the other people would say, and indeed, in some of those war games, what the Obama era official said is, hang on a minute, if we just respond with a reciprocal nuclear strike, we've completely lost the, new, the, the high ground. We've lost the ability to rope in countries like India and China on our side. So this question of do you need to have a reciprocal nuclear response It's such a fundamental question. In fact, it's driving lots of the Biden administration's nuclear debates. The Biden administration cancelled a missile known as the Slickham, a sea-launched cruise missile, which was a low-yield cruise missile. In other words, kind of not a big city-destroying bomb, but but sort of, you know, a, a few a few kilotons, smaller than Hiroshima. And the Pentagon, and indeed Congress, doesn't like that because they say, we need a kind of matching reciprocal capability. If the Russians nuke, you know, Poland with a small nuke, we've got to have a small nuke of our own. But the competing answer, and one I'm more, I'm definitely more partial to, and I'd, I'd like to hear your views on this, is that's ridiculous. You know, you, you you do that and you're entering into this spiral cycle that is going to kill everyone. You're much better off resorting to non-nuclear means of response. So Shashank, to be clear, your concern here, and you put it at a low probability, is that Russia uses a battlefield nuclear weapon that invites a NATO response and then you go up the escalation ladder potentially. What I've been worrying about is the stuff I've seen reports of on Russian state TV, where news anchors seem to be quite happily threatening to annihilate Britain just to prove a point with with a few nuclear weapons. From what you're saying, that sounds like just bluster, like I don't have to take it too seriously. Is that correct? I I will sleep easier if you say yes. (laughs) I think it is um, because ultimately deterrence is two ways. The same thing that is keeping us from sending troops into Ukraine that is preventing us from directly interceding on Ukraine's behalf is the same thing that is preventing Vladimir Putin from blowing up an arms depot in Poland. Uh, deterrence works. That isn't always good news for us, by the way, right? That, that The fact that deterrence works has put us in this strange situation of calibrating indirect support for Ukraine. But as long as we're not talking about a conventional fight that involves NATO and Russian troops killing one another uh, and, and, you know, literally shooting at one another and blowing each other up, I'm satisfied that these threats you see on Russian television, they are fundamentally conditional threats. It's deterrence, and I think it's holding. And, and you know, that may not be a great outcome for us because it has given Russia a free hand in Ukraine, but it does cut both ways. And the same thing that deters us also deters Russia. OK, we'll go back to a moment of nuclear peril 30 years ago in a moment and try and draw some lessons from that. But first, if you're a fan of this podcast, then I guarantee you would love a subscription to The Economist. It's the only way to read, watch and listen to everything we do. John, what have you particularly enjoyed from the most recent edition? One was written by Shashank, a terrific briefing on the future of the tank. And the other was Charlotte and Callum's briefing on supply chains. I felt both of those taught me something about the world that is sort of important and ubiquitous and that I didn't know. And Shashank, how about you? The thing that really just absolutely stands out was our fantastic cover last week on 
artificial intelligence models, foundation models. And it's just an incredible read, but it also inspired me to play with this myself. And I have been mildly obsessed, John, as you've seen on, on Twitter, perhaps, with two models made by OpenAI, an AI company. One of them is called GPT-3. It's a chatbot, and I've been getting it to generate kind of amusing little skits. And the other one is Dali 2, which is an image generation model. And I've been producing little Persian miniatures of things like the moon landings, um, Mughal paintings of Apache helicopters. I- I'm completely obsessed with this. Those images are amazing. Do check out Shashank's Twitter feed, which is at ShashJ, if you want to see them. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe if you want to read all those brilliant articles. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Rippling in the wind, the flag shone ruby red in the glare of a spotlight. It descended gently, the ropes pulled by two men perched on top of the Senate dome. Through the camera's lens, you can just about make out the hammer and sickle as the Soviet flag was lowered atop the Kremlin for the last time. For all of us here at ABC News, good night. Half a world away, the American TV news bulletins ended with this image of another empire's swan song, soundtracked by its anthem. It was Christmas 1991, and the last day of the Soviet Union. Soon, a new banner fluttered against the Moscow sky, the tricolor of the Russian Federation. Dealing with the collapse of a nation was, however, rather more complicated than just switching a flag. A pressing concern was the vast cache of nuclear weapons strewn across the disintegrating Union, an estimated 30,000, and the infrastructure to produce more. Amid the chaos, with no government really in control, there was fear that these so-called loose nukes would be lost mishandled, or fall into the wrong hands. Up next, we take you to the Oval Office for a nationwide television address by President Bush. Three months earlier, President Bush had expressed a wish to work with the Soviets to reduce the nuclear threat. If we and the Soviet leaders take the right steps, some on our own, some on their own, some together, we can dramatically shrink the arsenal of the world's nuclear weapons we can more effectively discourage the spread of nuclear weapons. We can rely more on defensive measures in our strategic relationship. We can enhance stability and actually reduce the risk of nuclear war. He announced that America would remove short-range, ground-based nuclear weapons from their positions in Europe. But the solution to the loose nukes came from Congress. Good morning. Senator Luger and I have um, brief statements. We hope they'll be brief. In late 1991, Senator Sam Nunn of Georgia, Democrat, and Indiana Republican Richard Luger co-authored a bill to fund cooperative threat reduction. The Nunn-Luger program was designed to deal with a new nuclear threat, one where disaster would more likely come from an accident than from aggression. The threat of a massive nuclear attack against the United States is probably at an all-time low since nuclear weapons were brought into the world. But the risk of some type accidental launch or some type unauthorized launch, that risk, if anything, has increased and continues to increase as instability increases in this region. 
The US government would provide the money and the expertise to consolidate nuclear weapons in limited secure sites, make an inventory of the weapons, handle and dispose of these weapons carefully, and find employment for thousands of former Soviet nuclear scientists so they wouldn't be tempted to work for whoever would pay them. The catastrophe many feared, as the Soviet nuclear security apparatus fragmented, never happened. And Nunluga is seen as a key reason for this. It paid for the denuclearization of Ukraine, as well as Belarus and Kazakhstan. Its critics say the US taxpayer shouldn't have footed the bill, between $300 and $400 million in its early years, for what amounts to aid to a former enemy. But that price looks cheap compared with the risk of letting loose nukes go to the highest bidder. Good afternoon, everybody. It is wonderful to be back. In 2012, President Obama held a symposium to honor Senators Nunn and Luger. This is one of our most important national security programs. And it's a perfect example of the kind of partnerships that we need, working together to meet challenges that no nation can address on its own. But one partnership wouldn't last long. Russia has said that our current agreement hasn't kept pace with the changing relationship between our countries, to which we say, let's update it. Let's work with Russia as an equal partner. Let's continue the work that's so important to the security of both our countries. And I'm optimistic that we can. His optimism was misplaced. The next year, Russia withdrew from Nunluga, replacing it with a more truncated agreement. Now, the arms control treaties put in place towards the end of the Cold War are gone, and the exchanges between Russian, American and Chinese nuclear scientists have been suspended too. Which is one reason why veterans of that era are so concerned about the risks of nuclear conflict now. Shashank, I have a question for you preceded by a brief story, which is that about... 20 years ago, when my wife and I were starting out in our careers, she was a journalist working for 60 Minutes, and she did a story about bioweapon facilities in the former Soviet Union and reported from one in Kazakhstan that was guarded by a single aging, often asleep security guard and a padlock on the door. So I wonder, how much do you worry about nuclear security in, perhaps not in Russia itself, but Ukraine, Kazakhstan at least have enrichment facilities that could be used, if not to make a bomb, then at least to make a a dirty bomb. How much do you worry about the security of that sort of material in Russia? I mean, that was a crazy era, wasn't it? I mean, there's some stunning stories. I'm not as concerned as I used to be, because maybe 10 years ago, I followed quite closely some of the Pakistani uh, cases where we were terrified of this Pakistani nuclear weapons complex, where you actually had not just radioactive waste, not just radioactive material, actual nuclear bombs in facilities which were being overrun by Islamist militants in Pakistan. That sort of stuff has calmed down a great deal. Nuclear security has improved. Countries have learned how to manage this stuff a lot better. But John, what Ukraine has showed us is, I think, not so much my concern about people nicking nuclear material and making a bomb with it, as the astonishingly cavalier fashion in which Russia has treated the safety of nuclear facilities, shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, I think it's one of the biggest in Europe, if not the biggest, and utterly disrespecting the safe operation of the plant, taking over the facility, uh, overworking its staff. This is shocking. And you know what we haven't had, I think, is a war in a place that has 
lots of nuclear reactors like this. Wars have typically taken place in the last 20, 30 years in places that don't have nuclear power. But we're now grappling with what happens in middle-income countries with nuclear plants when you have shelling, when you have bombing, when you have soldiers trooping across. What the hell happens to these places? Russia has set a really disturbing precedent here, I think. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not just the risk of a launch or the theft of nuclear materials that's worrying. It's a sort of cavalier attitude toward them. You know, listening to all of that stuff about non-Luger, it it sort of makes you misty-eyed for an incredibly different time in US politics where these senators are getting on with each other, doing constructive, useful things on foreign policy rather than at each other's throats. I mean, can you envisage anything like that level of collaboration in today's US political environment? That's funny. It's not necessarily the bipartisanship or the collaboration that I think we are nostalgic for. I think it's the seriousness from which bipartisanship and collaboration follows. And I think, I, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in lamenting the lack of seriousness in American politics, but especially in this area. It just seems, as you said at the beginning of the show, that thinking when it comes to nuclear strategy and I think foreign policy strategy more broadly in America, has just become quite glib. I think we've become somewhat comfortable and ossified since the end of the Cold War. And it's not that I believe that an agreement like Nunn-Luger would be impossible today, but it would just be a much, much heavier lift. And given the tenor of the Republican Party and the risk that Donald Trump would come back, it runs the risk of being undone, which makes it inherently less credible. And, and John, I think there's one other thing which, from my perspective, which is it was an, an era of the U.S. doing big things in foreign policy. Yes. I, I heard a U.S. official, I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago, say, we're able to rush enormous amounts of weapons to Ukraine. We have the logistics for that. It's incredible. But we can't buy a mine in Africa when we need to if the Chinese are going to buy it because the bureaucracy is there. Or, you know, we, we, this, it's a sense of sort of grand ambition fading away, the sense of the muscle of U.S. foreign policy maybe atrophying in some sense. Yeah. And there was, of course, after Afghanistan and the, and the debacle of the Iraq war, there was a reluctance among many Americans that we've seen to act as the world's policeman. And there was a hesitancy about using power in that way. But that hesitancy about using power cuts both ways. It also cuts against the sort of ambition that you rightfully lament. Shashak, I think you could argue that it's even worse than America not initiating these big diplomatic initiatives over the past 20 odd years. You know, in some important cases in arms control, the administration seems to have been bent on tearing them down. I mean, I'm not a blame America for everything sort of person, as you know. But when I was prepping for this podcast, I spent a bit of time reading about the Bush administration's decision to withdraw from the anti-ballistic missile treaty signed between Richard Nixon and, and Brezhnev back in 1972. And that decision from this distance looks absolutely crazy to me, that decision from the Bush administration, which came in 2001, shortly after 9-11. I mean, the administration essentially tore up a pretty successful arms control treaty for little apparent gain and seems to have started a bit of a domino effect in you know in the bad sense that since then arms control treaties between now Russia and and the US have just fallen entirely by the wayside a process that was completed when Donald Trump withdrew from the INF treaty and of course the Trump administration also withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal the JCPOA which the Biden administration is now trying to figure out what to do with I think I I'm not going to defend the decision to pull out of the ABM treaty John but 
it was a different era, right? It was an era in which there was also a sense of real fear of rogue nuclear threats from Iran, from particularly North Korea, a sense that missile defenses didn't have to stop a thousand ICBMs from Russia. They had to stop like one or two missiles from North Korea. But I think you're correct to say it had major and corrosive consequences. And a lot of what we have seen from Russia particularly, but also from China in the last 15 years, the development of these sort of, you know, Wunderwaffe, these kind of uh, underwater nuclear torpedoes, the Bond style hypersonic gliders. These are fundamentally not efforts and, you know, initiatives in sadism. They're efforts to circumvent American missile defenses, which Russia and China see as, as ultimately threatening to the security of their own deterrent. But having said that, it's really important that we, we kind of don't take a US centric view of nuclear developments in the last 10 years, because um, even if you had the ABM treaty in place, would today's China under Xi Jinping accept the massive asymmetry in nuclear warheads that exists today? Or would they be trying to aggressively close that gap in numbers, building new types of forces that can reach the United States regardless? I think the answer is they absolutely would. And that would in itself have all kinds of difficult and awkward consequences for arms control. Yeah, that's a good point, Shashank. And I don't mean to pin all of this on the Bush administration or even the Trump administration. You know, the Russian government is responsible for its its part of bad faith. But it just seems, in retrospect at least, that that was a really bad decision back in 2001. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from someone who spent more than half a century thinking about mutually assured destruction and how to avert it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As part of the Nunn-Luger program, and when he was head of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, Professor Siegfried Hecker led American efforts to work with Russian scientists to limit the nuclear threat. I asked him what lessons from that time might help us now. You know, nuclear is different. It's different than everything else. And the dangers are not just the question of nuclear war. Of course, that's the big one. But it's all of these other aspects of nuclear materials getting out of the hands of government, perhaps into the hands uh, of, of terrorists. And so one must work together. And I actually published a book with my Russian colleagues a few years ago, and we called it Doomed to Cooperate. And that is, we felt in 1990, we were doomed to cooperate. The situation today is we're still doomed to cooperate, but it looks more like we're just gonna be doomed because I don't see how we're going to have cooperation in today's political environment. If you take 1965, when I think you started as an intern in the Los Alamos laboratory as your sort of baseline, how worried are you now? Can you try and help me come up with a framework to think about those risks? In 65, you still had the hangover of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so that those were really difficult times. I, I would say through most of the Soviet times, 
uh, I had significant concern about the potential of exchange of, of nuclear weapons. So certainly uh, into the 80s until mid 80s. And I took the directorship because I thought that was just crucial for the survival of mankind. Uh, by the time I became director in 1985, uh, we had Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who took over the Soviet Union. And that's what changed things significantly. And by the late 1980s, 1990, that threat of nuclear war, quite frankly, just retreated into the background. And I could see the changes happening uh, with Putin and the way that he looked at the world starting in about 2007. Uh, he gave a speech at a Munich conference uh, where he really castigated the United States uh, about sort of its singular exceptionalism. And I became more uh, and more concerned let me put it this way, sort of less comfortable of the situation we were in. And then it was really not uh, until uh, this February 24th that I became very concerned. Is that the greatest area of concern in your view? Because some non-proliferation experts still worry more about India and Pakistan as the potential uh, source of a nuclear conflict. I mean, is Ukraine the right place to be focusing our concerns at the moment? Right. So my my concern is the nuclear weapons. Uh, and actually, I still think that, that that risk is very low. The nuclear proliferation part, and that is that there are other countries that might indeed use nuclear weapons. Uh, and there at the top of that list is India and Pakistan. Uh, and, and since we have very little influence on that dynamic, because it, what really drives India-Pakistan is that relationship. And then to some extent, of course, India and the nuclear part is also driven by the fact that they're worried about China and they you know, continue to be skirmishes between India and China. So it's actually a bit of a triangle, but the India and Pakistan has been the most complex one. It's been pushed into the background, and, and that's terribly unfortunate. Uh, and then, of course, you know, beyond that, you get to North Korea. Uh, now, I've spent lots of my time worried about North Korea. I've been in North Korea seven times, uh, and I, I still think the North Korean threat, uh, again, is low, uh, but it's, it's non-zero. So we should be worried, uh, and what it takes See, and, and this is what worries me about the fact that this Ukraine has blown up the nuclear order. It takes countries to work together to make sure that those things can be controlled. So whether it's India and Pakistan, or whether it's North Korea, or whether it's nuclear materials and weapons getting into the hands uh, you know, of other countries, that's what one has to worry about. Just to take you full circle back to Nunluga, I mean, that program was set up at a time when America was full of self-confidence really about what it could achieve in the world. And now the world has changed. What role do you think the US can play now in keeping the world safer as regards nuclear weapons and nuclear materials? You know, the overall assignment as such for an American stem is still the same, you know, is to avoid uh, nuclear detonations uh, anywhere. Uh, what's just so much more difficult uh, is if you don't have Russia on board, what Putin has done in the Ukraine, what he has threatened in the Ukraine, now sort of throws Russia outside uh, of the global nuclear order. 
Uh, and what will have to be done is the U.S. will have to lead the rest. And that means working with the Chinese also. Lead the rest to try to reestablish a global nuclear order. I personally believe uh, that once uh, we get past the Ukraine situation, that Russia will try to move back into that global nuclear order. But as far as I'm concerned, you can't let it do that without it having to pay a price. Let me ask you a question, Shashank. There are, I think, nine countries that, that have nuclear weapons. And then there are another four that are believed to be close, I guess not on the brink, but close, right? Iran, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and South Korea. Setting aside Japan, you know, which has a sort of uniquely agonized relationship with its own past. If you were the leader of Iran, Saudi, or South Korea, why would you not go nuclear? I think the principal reason you wouldn't go nuclear is the almighty diplomatic ruckus it would create with possible sanctions, opprobrium. If you're a US ally like like South Korea or Japan, and to, to a degree Saudi Arabia, you risk forfeiting US security guarantees if you do this, uh, particularly if you're a, a sort of smaller ally like Taiwan, which in the past has also explored nuclear weapons. And when it did so, the Americans basically uh, uh, squeezed them. They put the squeeze on them to say, you better stop this, otherwise there'll be serious trouble. Also, military preemption. Israel has struck nuclear reactors or facilities in Iraq and Syria in the past, in the past 30 years, and it's threatened to strike Iranian one. So you risk precipitating the war that you hope your nuclear weapons will avert. So there's all these difficult calculations going on. But I have to tell you, that calculation is a balance of different things. And as you look five, ten years in the future, and you look at the trajectory of Iran, which, you know, last month, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, said it had accumulated enough uranium enriched to 60 percent uh, which, if enriched further, could produce one nuclear bomb. And it isn't a big jump to go from 60% enrichment to 90% that's weapons grade. Um, that is going to have a huge impact on Saudi calculations. Uh, and similarly, if North Korea continues to develop a mature nuclear arsenal that can strike Los Angeles and New York, the, the, the South Koreans are going to say, are we really so confident the Americans will take a nuke on our behalf? Or do we need to think about our options of our own? We, you know, we wrote a cover story on this, John, 18 months ago, which was addressed some of these issues if people want to go back and look at it. But but no, I think the next 10 years of non-proliferation is going to be a hairy period, depending on what happens in Iran and what happens in North Korea. What about proliferation, as it were, from countries that already have the bomb, right? China has said that it wants to radically increase and modernize its nuclear arsenal. It seems likely that the U.S. is going to do the same. Our triad is really old. Is the whole idea of arms reduction, not even to mention disarmament, are those ideas moribund for now? Well, the Federation of American Scientists, which is a great nonprofit group that does research on these things, publishes estimates every year of what it thinks nuclear powers have in their inventories. And, and it concluded that for the first time in a long time, the world was experiencing an expansion of nuclear stockpiles again. So this is a pretty kind of moment of considerable gravity. And the main expansion is, of course, probably over the next 10 years going to be in China, which is radically expanding not just the number of nuclear warheads. Researchers found a fantastic number of silos being built in, in China, um, but the types of these weapons as well. And I talked earlier about tactical nuclear weapons. Well, North Korea is building these things to try and show that it could launch uh, short-range or medium-range attacks on 
Tokyo, on Seoul, on US bases and ports and facilities in East Asia in the event of a war. So this is the big problem. You know, it's what experts tend to call vertical proliferation rather than horizontal proliferation, proliferation within a country, new types of nukes. And this isn't just the kind of the rogues, right? This is this is the Americans. I talked earlier about the Slickham, the sea launch cruise missile, uh, and the kind of new interest in new types of, of nuclear forces in these countries as well. You know, what worries me about that is that at some point, the launchers that you're using to fire off these shorter range systems, like the Russian Iskander, for example, which is a dual capable system that's been used against Ukraine. Like, you don't know whether the missile on that is a nuclear missile or a conventional missile. At some point, you begin to get into the problem of what's called entanglement. The conventional launchers look the same and sometimes are co-located with the nuclear launchers. And to me, this is a big problem. This is a problem that we're going to face as nuclear forces become more diverse, more numerous, more, more kind of geographically dispersed around the place in, within countries. We're going to f- suffer this problem of entanglement and it's going to make for some moments of real tension and difficulty inside crises in wartime and in other types of crises. Shashank, just to bring things back to America before we close, when Donald Trump was president, I remember some friends on the West Coast being pretty alarmed when he and Kim Jong-un were trading nuclear insults. And there was a discussion at the time about whether America's command structure for launching nuclear strikes was too centralized, i.e. placed too much power in the hands of one man. How unusual is America in having such a centralized command structure? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? The question of nuclear command and control is so interesting. I think the Russian example is really is really fascinating because they have something called the nuclear briefcase. Uh, the, 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 I think it's called the Chaget. I, I, forgive me, Russian speakers, if I mangled it. But I believe the, the sort of Russian president has one, but so too does the chief of the general staff and the Russian defense minister. And this was a live question during the coup in Moscow in the early 90s. And, and the question of who had nuclear custody was Gorbachev's nuclear briefcase in good working order. In other countries, there's questions around delegation. How much authority is delegated down? In Pakistan, if you're a nuclear commander and you're facing an oncoming rush of Indian tanks, do you have nuclear authority to use them or do you have to pass this back up? And of course, my favorite of all is the British system where the British prime minister, every new one, writes a letter that is then sealed and placed in the safe of a Triton submarine before it goes on patrol. We don't know what it says, but it could say, you know, if Britain's gone, fire everything you have. Or some people have speculated, it'll say, go sell to Australia, see if that's left, put yourself under Australian command. But my favorite story, which is from Peter Hennessy's, the historian Peter Hennessy's writings about how the submarine knows if that central authority is gone, is of course to listen to BBC Radio 4. And if I think if a certain number of consecutive broadcasts of the Today programme, which is a sort of flagship British morning news programme, are gone, <laughs> then that shows you the apocalypse has truly hit, which I think gives you a sense of the cultural salience of the BBC in British public life, its central pivotal role in our nuclear command and control doctrine. That's terrific. Well, that takes us seamlessly to the quiz. I hope you're both ready. The codes and communications equipment to authorise a nuclear strike follow the president around everywhere in a briefcase known as the nuclear football. It's said to weigh some 20 kilos and is a heavy responsibility. After Ronald Reagan survived an assassination attempt in 1981, The Economist asked with alarm about the hours the president was unconscious. Where, one wonders, was the military aide who carries the codes necessary to initiate a nuclear attack, we asked. It turned out he'd been left behind when Reagan was rushed to hospital. The nuclear biscuit, 
of identification codes was later found in Reagan's shoe, discarded as he was prepped for surgery. Question one, which Russian leader proposed not once, but twice, that both countries stop lugging around their respective nuclear briefcases? And which American president both times refused? Was it Gorbachev and Reagan? That seems like a sort of peacenik Russian thing to do. I think Gorbachev's too obvious. I'm going to go for the counterintuitive answer of that well-known peacenik Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I'm guessing he was he was pleading with George W. Bush. It was, in fact, the man sandwiched between those two Russian presidents. It was Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton. Yeltsin apparently suggested retiring both the nuclear football and the Russian Chermodanchik in 1994. And again in 1997, saying, what if we were to give up having to have our finger next to the button all the time? Clinton responded that he would have to think about this, but the discussions came to nothing. Question two. It's widely asserted that the name football comes from an early nuclear war plan codenamed Dropkick. Evidence for such a plan has never been found, though there were other such plans called Dropshot and Off Tackle. But there is reference to an Operation Dropkick in which 1964 black comedy about the first strike nuclear attack. Extra points if you can reel off the full title and the director. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Directed by... Stanley Kubrick. Uh, equal points. That's very diplomatic. Yeah. I'm glad I jumped in and stole some points off you, John. I had completely forgotten that that was a Kubrick film. I'm embarrassed to say on the air. And by the way, for fans of that movie, if you look back at my pieces, my briefings on nuclear weapons in the last 18 months or so, you'll find some crossheads and captions that are subtle allusions to this, thanks to our briefings editor, Oliver Morton. Yes, Ollie is somebody who also knows a lot about this subject and inspired this podcast. So thanks to Ollie. Shashak, thank you for stopping by again. Uh, thank you so much for having me, John. I hope it's not 124 episodes before I'm back. And I'm, uh, I've really enjoyed the discussion. It won't be. And Fasman, see you soon. Take care. Thanks, John. It was good to be back. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Amika Shortino-Nolan with research by Erica Shin. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have an American politics newsletter, Checks and Balance, also such a good name. You can sign up for that at economist.com forward slash newsletters. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.